Welcome to Starry Indecisis. As always, we would like to begin by acknowledging uh, with respect and gratitude that this podcast is being recorded on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people, uh, the Songhees, Wasanich, and Esquimalt nations. For a more fulsome discussion of land acknowledgements and what they mean to me personally, uh, as well as Starry and Decisis as a podcast, please feel free to go back and listen to the first episode of Season 4. Well, today's episode on the notwithstanding clause doesn't grapple with issues of indigenous sovereignty and reconciliation uh, as directly as some of the other episodes in this season. Uh, The notwithstanding clause has long been criticized for its use and potential use to undermine the rights and freedoms of marginalized communities. And it's important to recognize that indigenous people in Canada have long been the victims of these discriminatory laws and policies at the hands of the colonial state. So, as many of you may remember, in November of last year, the Ford government preemptively invoked the notwithstanding clause to impose a four-year deal on members of CUPE who were planning on striking following a breakdown in contract negotiations. Now, vaguely at the time, I knew of the existence of the notwithstanding clause, but I realized that I really had no idea how it functioned or its history. And as a half American, the idea that the legislature could just choose to disregard sections of the Constitution and legally violate constitutional rights was pretty shocking. Uh, I'm used to that being done by a, a reactionary and illegitimate Supreme Court. And so I set out to try and fill this gap in my legal education, and I came across an article by Patricia Hughes that really clearly spelled out the fears I had about how Section 33 could be used. I reached out hoping to learn some more, and this is the conversation that you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Now, if you wouldn't mind for the listeners just introducing yourself and giving a little bit about your background in this area. Sure. Good to be here, Patrick. My background is initially as a political science professor and as a law professor. I was dean of law at the University of Calgary. Uh, Then my last position was as the founding executive director of the Law Commission of Ontario. I've taught constitutional law, spoken on it, written on it. It's been a major area of mine along with some others, but for this topic, it's been a major area. So first, I thought it would be smart to start with uh, an explanation of what Section 33 or the Notwithstanding Clause is uh, and how it came to be included in the Charter. So Section 33 of the Charter permits the federal government, uh, provincial governments and territorial governments to include in uh, legislation an override that would apply to sections 2, 7 to 15, and and 7 to 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And what that means is that the legislation will apply regardless of whether or not there is a problem under those sections. The reason it exists at all is because during the negotiations for patriation of the um, Constitution, Initially, uh, the effort was being made to uh, by a current prime minister's father to patriate the constitution. He was willing to try to do it uh, unilaterally, but eventually 
uh, after a lot of difficulty and opposition from the provinces, he uh, brought a reference before the Supreme Court of Canada and they said that he needed support from provinces, a significant level of support without defining what that was. In the end, in the uh, Kitchen Accord with Gretchen and Romanov, McMurtry, the federal uh, Saskatchewan and Ontario negotiators, they decided to uh, include as a way to deal with the provinces who objected this override clause, Section 33. Now, the reason for it is that apart from being able to patriate the Constitution, as far as the objecting provinces were concerned, they had a they had a concern about the impact of the courts. They didn't really trust the courts. They wanted to be sure that they could pass legislation that they really wanted to pass, at least as far as those sections are concerned. And and so that's why it's included. Of course, what's interesting about it is that these are some of the most important sections of the charters. So Section 2 is, after all, for fundamental freedoms, but not fundamental enough that they can't be overridden by Section 33. The, uh, the override lasts for five years, and, of course, that's because uh, traditionally, the, uh, or at least constitutionally, I should say, uh, a government can't be in place for longer than five years. Now, mostly that legislation makes elections every four years, but it can be renewed if, if the government is able to do that. So we've touched a little on this already, but what was the reasoning for why certain provinces wanted this clause included in the Charter? Well, as I said, I, their concern was that the the Constitution, which after all really diminished or I won't go so far as eliminated because it's a bit questionable whether that's the case, but the Constitution, after all, established a system of constitutional supremacy under Section 52 of, of the Constitution Act 1982, replacing, in effect, parliamentary supremacy, which um, the legislators of these uh, provinces were concerned was being eliminated completely. They wanted to maintain some remnant of parliamentary, parliamentary supremacy, and that's what Section 33 allowed them to do. Now, of course, following the implementation of the Charter, Quebec famously reenacted every law that they had with the inclusion of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, but how else have we seen it been used since? Right. So Quebec um, did do that in an omnibus bill. It actually reenacted all that legislation prior to then and included in, in the uh, reenactment, reenactments of the legislation uh, the override clause. Uh, and uh, subsequently, eventually, that, that was abandoned. But, of course, they've also used the clause subsequently in relation to French language rights. In, um, in the Ford case, the Supreme Court of Canada said there's very little that you can, there are just certain minimal requirements to apply Section 33, and I guess we can get to those later. But the most recent cases from Quebec, of course, are the are Bill 21 and Bill 96, the first one relating to forbidding people who wear religious garments or a necklace or whatever uh, from working in certain public sector jobs. Um, and indeed, from receiving services, um, it covers that as well, that the faces have to be uncovered. 
Yeah. And that's a very controversial one. The other one is also relates to French language rights and establishing French as a predominant uh, language in Quebec. That's Bill 96. Again, we'll come back, I think, to the question of, of how Section 33 gets, um, what the real remedy for Section 33 is if there's a concern about it. Other provinces have also tried to use Section 33, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. So, for example, Alberta used it uh, in legislation to try to limit compensation that people who had been um, mandatorily sterilized, women who had been mandatorily sterilized, uh, the limit to compensation for that. And that was withdrawn. I suppose the there's been cases in which Section 33 was used or threatened uh, because of an initial court decision which overrid, found legislation unconstitutional, but subsequent decisions uh, found it the same legislation constitutional. In those cases, Section 33 was withdrawn or not used after all. Most recently, the reason why this became such a, an issue recently is because of Ontario's use of Section 33. Ontario has used or tried to use it three times. The first time it used it, uh, or threatened to use it, I should say, was in relation to uh, the Conservative government's efforts and successful efforts to reduce the Toronto Council to 25 wards from 45 wards. In that case, uh, the government said it would use Section 33 if it couldn't get a stay of an initial decision which found that reduction uh, unconstitutional. In a sense, it used it as a threat. Uh, the Court of Appeal did grant a stay. It never used it. Government didn't use it. It did use it in a case involving uh, limits on third-party spending. There had been limits uh, up to a year before an election. Uh, they limited it to, sorry, it had been six months before an election. They, they made it a year before the election. It was thought that this probably limited unions more than anybody. But they used that, and that was successful. That legislation had been found to be unconstitutional. Of course, the most recent has been the the use of Section 33 in a, in a kind of unusual way. I would go so far as to say a bullying way. The education workers in Ontario who were represented by QP and the government were in negotiations with a very big gap between in their, in their positions. Uh, the QP was in a position where it could strike. It, before it could strike, the government uh, enacted legislation to prevent them striking and to impose contracts and use Section 33 to protect that on Section 2. Now, the reason that was success, that, that, that was an issue here is since the Saskatchewan legislation, uh, legislation which was attempted to limit strikes, the Supreme Court of Canada found that striking was a protected right under Section 2 of the Charter. So the issue became whether or not the educational workers were, in fact, able to strike or not. The government did go to the Ontario Labour Relations Board, but the parties settled before that. Part of the settlement was that uh, if they returned to work, the the government would withdraw Section 33, uh, and it did withdraw Section 33. After, really, in effect, the education workers, QP, uh, gave up their right to strike. 
So in a sense, the government has succeeded in what it was trying to do. Uh, they did subsequently come to an agreement, uh, which was a lot closer to the government's position than it was to Cuba's position. But it was a, a very controversial use of Section 33, and it gets us to the point of uh, what is the remedy for the use of Section 33, if there's an issue about it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think something that I think warrants consideration when we talk about this is whether or not with the teacher strike, we're seeing the accountability mechanisms of, of political pressure working or whether really the pressure of Ontario invoking it and then kind of only withdrawing it on the condition uh, of the end of the strike, you can say that its use really was successful as a weapon for the Ford government. Uh, particularly given the the ultimate outcome uh, of the contracts? I think in the end, it probably didn't affect the negotiated agreement that much because, as I said, the the ending position, and I can't quite remember what it was now, but it was closer to the government than it was to QP's initial, which was quite uh, considerable, I have to say. So the remedy for... I'll go back to something I, I referred to earlier, which is... What does the government have to do when it invokes Section 33? And that takes us later to another question. So it's pretty clear from the Ford case, and that was the one in Quebec relating to language, French language rights, and Irwin Toy, also in Quebec the next year, that all the government has to do is this kind of a standard clause they use, and that is that, uh, you know, the provisions of this legislation apply notwithstanding the Section 33 of the Constitution Act 1982. And they, they can refer to specific provisions or to the whole legislation. But as long as they effectively put down the right words, include the right words in the legislation, that's it. Uh, nobody gets to reassess, you know, whether or not this is a good use of Section 33. And why is that? Well, because it was included to give the provinces the opportunity to enact legislation without being hindered by the charter. The remedy, therefore, is a political. If there's enough fuss about it, maybe the government will withdraw it. I referred earlier to Alberta's legislation, which would limit compensation for women who had been sterilized against their will. And uh, there was such a fuss about that, that it was withdrawn. So public pressure worked there. In this case, was it the public pressure? Probably, because this was probably the wrong group to have taken this stand against with, with the unions. All the unions came out in favor of of the educational workers made it very difficult for the government. They, in fact, unions that had supported the government previously in the election came out against it. Now, on the other hand, when you look at Quebec, the Bill 21, which clearly is unconstitutional and was found to be unconstitutional, in fact, or would have been by the lower court that looked at it, couldn't do anything about it because of Section 33, but it was pretty clear that that was the view. In Quebec, that legislation is very popular. So minorities are at a disadvantage there because the majority, who are supposed to be protected by each other, are at a disadvantage because the majority actually are in favour of Bill 21. So nothing could be done about that. Now, there is a case in front of the courts at the moment on that um, that I don't know 
has, which is actually raises a point, which is that this legislation, Bill 21, affects, say, Muslim women more than other groups. It affects a lot of groups, but it may affect Muslim women more. Does Section 20A, which isn't currently um, covered by Section 33, is not listed in Section 33, say that, the, that Section 33 therefore doesn't apply to them and therefore the legislation can be unconstitutional against them? We'll have to see what happens there, but it's I, that's a whole other topic and we don't have time to look at it. But I think it's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's clear that it, it wouldn't be subject. So it's public pressure. The other effort by the Ford government, where they used it, in fact used it, it didn't matter. You know, public pressure didn't have any effect if there was any real public pressure at all. So governments are reenacted, elected, even though they use it. There are not too many cases maybe Alberta is the only one, there might be a couple more, where efforts to use it, it gets withdrawn because of public pressure. But that's the remedy for it. You know, sometimes it's enacted and in the government gets re-elected, but it doesn't use Section 33 in the same legislation. It's a question, a real question as to whether or not there's any real effort to, any real way to address the use of Section 33. It is constitutional to use it, so... And I mean, this is really a bit of a mix between constitutional supremacy and parliamentary supremacy that we see in the U.S. and the U.K. respectively. But do you think that, that in our case that public pressure is really an adequate way to protect minority rights? It depends, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it sort of worked in Ontario. There isn't real public pressure in Quebec against the use of the force. So um, is that right, wrong? I mean, the legislation is unconstitutional. If you take Section 33 away, (laughs) it's unconstitutional. But Section 33 doesn't make it unconstitutional, but it uses a constitutional method of getting around that. So public pressure is, I, I, you know what, I think back to some of the prorogation situations under uh, former Prime Minister Harper, and, well, there was some uh, outcry about that, you know, academics were walking around in the street and that kind of thing. But there really wasn't a whole lot of public pressure. And what it illustrates is that so much of our system relies on the political culture. It relies on people understanding it. It relies on people willing to stand up for it. And if they're not, then it's very it's vulnerable. So I'm not sure. As far as I'm concerned, it's included. It's there. There was a reason for it. it provinces, the federal government could use it, although they haven't. And therefore, you know, the, the Supreme Court has taken pretty much a hands-off approach, although it hasn't been asked to look at it recently. I don't think that would change, but you never know. Now, going through the history of the use of the notwithstanding clause, there are several instances where the clause was invoked or threatened to be invoked, in which the courts then rendered that to be unnecessary, as it found that the legislation was actually constitutional. Uh, For example, the back-to-work order and the Catholic school funding bills in in Saskatchewan, uh, as well as the electoral ward boundaries by the Ford government, Kind of with all of this considered, do you think that the clause being invoked or threatened to be invoked pressures the courts to find legislation constitutional? I think that's an interesting question. And I think 
I think it's one that we can't really answer. And the closest case that I think we run into where is there some concern? One would think the courts wouldn't be bullied by this. Uh, but I suppose it is the it is the Ward Toronto uh, City Council Ward case because it was in that case that, in fact, after the initial decision which found it unconstitutional, the legislation unconstitutional, the Premier said, you know, uh, the judge isn't elected, I'm elected, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to use Section 33. When the Attorney General went to uh, the Court of Appeal to get a stay of the decision, the initial decision, Superior Court decision, the position the Attorney General's office took was, you know, if you offer, if you provide the stay, we won't use Section 33. Well, in some circumstances, one might consider that a threat. Or a bribe. <laughs> uh, was it? You know, how did the court respond? To be fair, it's not the best example because the original decision wasn't all that great. <laughs> so perhaps, you know, it wasn't, it would have ended up that way. But I'd say that's, that is a bit of an illustration of how it might be used as a way to kind of convince courts, you know what, we don't want to get into this. So if you can find for me, that's okay. I don't want to say the Court of Appeal would respond that way. And we have no way of knowing whether that was the case. But I suppose just thinking about how it could happen, that might be how it would happen. To circle back to some of the remedies to Section 33, do you think we would be better off without the notwithstanding clause? Uh, And do you think we should remove it and we would be better off just with having a stronger constitutional supremacy? Well, it's not going to happen. I mean, <laughs> whatever, I think. You know what? I wrote an article, a short article about this when I was at UNB, actually, on why I thought Section 33 wasn't a good thing. And I specifically mentioned in there that I thought eventually it could be used to really override minority rights. And that's what happened in Quebec. I don't think it's that seriously one could think about opening up the Constitution to you know, remove Section 33, because why would provinces give that up? I were a province, I certainly wouldn't give it up. I mean, it would limit my ability to do so. You know, and there's this notion that originally it was thought, well, this will be used very rarely, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the way it's being used or threatened or tried to be used, it covers all kinds of different things, you know. And true, it hasn't been a great deal, but I guess the concern now is with Ontario's use of it, the way Ontario hasn't used it. But, you know, and and now the newer ways in which Quebec has used it, not just this omnibus bill, that it's um, in some ways a much more dangerous sport in terms of minority rights or freedom of association rights or something like that. So I guess the other issue is whether or not somebody else should try to deal with Section 33. So during the situation with the educational workers, you had people writing about the federal government should get involved and they should have got involved in Section 21. They should still do something about that. And the question is, what is the federal government's role here? What are are its tools if if it wanted to do something? So people talked about uh, reservation and disallowance. 
the reserve powers and the disallowance powers, which are really not used in, and which were originally powers that the UK was able to use to deal with colonial legislation. And the other way to do as again, those to disallow provincial legislation today hardly seems like a wise move. When you've got, you know, Alberta deciding it's going to not apply federal law, it's hardly an appropriate response to start, even if it's a different province. So I don't think those are really available. Uh, the other way, of course, is a reference of legislation and whether the federal government could refer, bring a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada to find out whether or not it was constitutional or not. I honestly don't see how that could be effective. It's, it's clearly constitutional to use it. You know, one of the points I, I meant to mention earlier that there are equivalents to section, sort of equivalents to section 33 and some other documents like international human rights a couple to which Canada is a party. But interestingly, in those documents, the use of, of their override provision is more limited. It's supposed to apply only if there's a real emergency. And there are certain rights that are guaranteed by the document that cannot be overridden, that can be overridden under the Charter under Section 33. Would, a, would the Supreme Court look at Section 33 and say, well, we should learn from that? I don't think so. Um, those are explicit provisions. Section 33 is explicit in what it says, too, and it doesn't need a lot of room to make it broader than it is. So I, I kind of feel I'm reluctant about it, but I really don't think there's a lot that can be done and that one has to live with the nature of the Constitution. Yeah, that does seem to be the practical reality, at least at the moment. Is there anything else that you think we've missed in our discussion here today, or is there anything else in particular that you would like to highlight? I don't think there is. I mean, we've talked about where it came from, why it's there, why it's not likely to disappear in a hurry, you know, how one can assess individual legislation. One of the issues that actually has arisen that people have written on, oh, there's a couple of things maybe we should comment on briefly one the first one and then i'll come to the thing i was going to talk about the first one is that it can't be used retrospectively you know you can't go back to existing legislation and apply section 33 remember what quebec did it reenacted its legislation and and, um one of the issues with that legislation in ontario that limited third-party funding was they initially enacted legislation without it it was declared unconstitutional legislation. So then they reenacted the legislation with the provision that was Section 33. There was some question at that time about the legitimacy of that because you can't just reenact legislation during the same same sitting of parliament for the legislative assembly. I guess one question one might argue is that once you include Section 33, you've got different legislation. But somehow, despite the concern about that, nothing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I think I've learned a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you. 
One thing I do want to clarify is the taste for the abolition of the notwithstanding clause, because I do think there is an important distinction to be made between the appetite of politicians to abolish the notwithstanding clause versus the will of the people. There was a study done by the Angus Reid Institute that came out in January that found that the majority of people in all provinces except for Quebec uh, would be willing to abolish the clause, whereas only three in five Quebecers would keep it. I'll link that in the description. There is some interesting stuff in there, uh, including maybe unsurprisingly significant differences in people's opinions based on their political affiliation. One thing that would be interesting is to compare that to uh, the opinions of the politicians, because they are the ones that have a more direct interest in keeping the notwithstanding clause and keeping the, the power to remove people's rights versus the will of the people who obviously are the ones often whose rights are, are being infringed upon uh, by the state. Uh, obviously, it's not such a simple dichotomy um, when you're talking about that because you're talking about majority rule uh, and, and minority rights generally. But uh, I, I think there is, that was a distinction that I wanted to make because I don't think it is so cut and dry as there being no kind of will across Canada for, for this to be removed. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more, please go back and listen to uh, earlier episodes this season. Or if you've already gone through all those, you'll have to wait another two weeks when we have another episode coming out. Thanks so much.